Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. Cool, awesome. Uh, yeah, no, this is my first time being on a stream, so um, I, I don't know, I'm a little bit more on the quiet side. Um, what's up with you? How are uh, you doing? Oh, not much with me. We were just uh, talking about insular, irrelevant, esoteric uh, internet drama. And uh, then uh, I've spent the past 10 minutes repeatedly reminding Stream that I actually completely forget what it is we're meant to talk about. Would you mind giving your name uh, and pronouns for the benefit of my chat? Sure. I'm Isidore, Isidore Johnson. I go to the University of Connecticut, and my pronouns are he, him. Oh, howdy, uh, Isidore Johnson. Yeah, no, it's it's cool. Connecticut is uh, an interesting place. It is full of um, people who don't really like free speech, actually. So I started uh, a club on campus. I don't know if I talked to you about this at the conference. I met Vosh uh, at uh, Free or Future Fest uh, through Students for Liberty. Um, is I started an organization called Huskies for Free Speech, which is designed to protect uh, freedom of exchange, uh, freedom of academic freedom, and freedom of uh, conversation on campus because some of this stuff has been stifled. And regardless of whether or not we like what's happening on campus, it'd be better to discuss it openly than through politicized, like, bias reporting systems. By uh, uh, Huskies, is that is that like the um, the mascot for the, the school? Yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Huskies was actually the mascot for the um, middle and elementary school that I went to. So I, I oh, we have cool. a, a fondness now. Yeah, are you from, uh, you're, you're from the West Coast, right? Yes, I grew up in Beverly Hills. Oh, interesting. So what, what was it like moving from like California to more upstate or upper West Coast? Um, well, Los Angeles is kind of a beast of its own. It's a disgusting and ugly city um, mm -hmm. where the wealth does nothing to uh, spiritually enrich its people. Uh, and also the traffic is terrible. Uh, th uh, that being said, the food in uh, Los Angeles is virtually unrivaled in the United States. But moving up north, though, I mean, things are a lot prettier. We actually have seasons up here. I really like the Pacific Northwest. That's cool. Yeah, we've got seasons up here too. Um, uh, in Connecticut, uh, it's like winter. It hits you hard if you are away from the coast and sort of light if you are towards the coast. Since I live sort of on the border of New York, uh, we sort of are right on the sea line uh, into the, um, the, I can't remember what name of the shore, but um, basically, um, we sort of get a temperate, uh, somewhat saline, like water front, which is nice because we don't have really chaotic beaches, but, but it's fun. So yeah, what were we going to talk about? I was, I was thinking since we were talking about whether or not capitalism versus syndicalism was better um, at Free or Future Fest, you might want to continue this conversation. But if you had something else in mind. No, no, I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted to. I, uh, I actually care about that quite a lot. So wait, I, I actually want to ask about your, um, you, you would self-describe as a libertarian, right? I would identify as a progressive capitalist. Um, I think that there, or I think capitalism upset, or I think liberty upsets patterns and generally upsetting these patterns is in favor of people who are disadvantaged. I think that oftentimes coincides with libertarianism, but I'm not an, I'm not an absolutist on property rights. I think in the same sort of way that we have narrowly defined exceptions to free expression and other things, um, it is a human right, but it is not the only human right. 
Anyway, yeah, no, I understand that. With with regards to the, you said that there are some not so interested in free speech types uh, at, at your campus. What do you mean by that exactly? Sure, I'll give you an example and I'll try to make that into like a, bro a broader uh, picture of what's happening. So in student government last year, one of my friends made the argument that he thought the term all lives matter wasn't racist. Not that he believed the term, but he thought that this term wasn't inherently wrong. Um, so recently, there was a movement to put a chief diversity officer on the head of student government. And uh, I looked into what the effective job description for this person was, and it was to process bias complaints and make decisions about what speech to censor versus what speech to not censor. So I dug into this and found that they released this entire report, uh, which sort of demonized this guy. Not only did they demonize this guy, but they kicked him out of student government for months. Following this, my friend in student government, uh, who's president of student government, uh, tried to help me with the free speech bill to make it clear our broader statement of purpose as a university. What ended up happening to him was he was called a white supremacist. And people were like, you are evil for sort of disagreeing with the notion of completely defunding the police. And whether or not you agree with defunding the police, I think is sort of besides the, the question. It's more a matter of can people disagree in good faith and what sort of thing happens along that line. So you think it's um it's it's not so much the discourse, it's the fact that there are there are sometimes people who will, through any disagreement, jump to the most extreme possible condemnation in an attempt to exclude them from the discussion entirely, rather than to directly engage with their points. I would say it's a little bit of both. I would say there are some policies on the books that are illegal and unconstitutional that the school upholds. Um, I would say in large part, this is because administration um, has no personal liability for breaking people's constitutional rights. Um, like what? Sure. So are you familiar with the term qualified immunity? Yeah. So not only does this apply to police officers, which is a travesty in and of itself, um, but it also applies to school administrators. So when a college decides to make a blatantly unconstitutional speech code and specifically target an individual who is dissenting, and this isn't only in political cases too. Like there was this case uh, where an administrator wanted to build a parking garage and an environmentalist student thought this was a waste of money and was bad for the environment. And so he put up some posters sort of dissenting and explaining why this was a bad idea. And because he talked about wanting to kill the bill, that he, uh, the administrator decided to interpret that as wanting to kill the professor, uh, and or not the professor, kill the administrator. And that was then later used as an excuse to expel the student, despite the fact that the student- Yeah, and, and so broadly speaking, like these policies that are in place add to this climate, but they aren't the climate themselves. I think like, I think it's like a, a combination of the policies and the norms that take place. But I think that by changing the policies, we can also change the norms. Okay, so I think, I don't know if it's, I don't know if I'd really ascribe any of this to constitutionality, because I'm pretty sure that as long as you're talking within the discretion of the university, you're not necessarily protected um, from the consequences of your speech, even if it's a state university. But I think, um, because we've, we've had problems with this as well, at least with the colleges that I've been to, the college, then the university, where 
it's really difficult to manage speech in these environments because on one hand, first of all, students are rowdy. College students are rowdy and politically opinionated, uh, which they have every right to be. Great, fine, whatever. Um, you know, they're going to take very seriously a lot of these issues. Um, and I think that there should be consequences to the things that you do in university, both as a student and an administrator. If you're an administrator and you're pushing some racist ass shit, if people want to call you out in that, you know, yell at you when you're between classes, put signs up, whatever, I think that's well within your right. Too much, I guess it borders on harassment, but, um, but like you said, the administration does have a lot of discretion when it comes to silencing people they don't like as well. How do you think uh, this could be managed responsibly? Because it feels like we're we're running into the 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 I guess the clash between speech and consequences for speech. Speech is meaningless if there are no consequences to it. I mean, talking all you want with no action. I mean, that's not really properly free speech. Uh, it, it, you need to be able to have sort of affect consequence. But of course, if you do that too much, you have a silencing effect. Yeah, no, I think you're right that you can't completely divorce speech from the consequences as a result of it. But I do think in general, you can create systems that prevent administrators from being the one who administer these consequences. So I wanted to correct you a little bit in the sense that uh, administrators do not have the ability to punish political speech and when they've come to court over this sort of thing, or when they've tried to create free speech zones or other things, they've repeatedly lost, and for good reason, because state universities are an aspect of the, uh, of the state and federal government in large part. And so this sort of jurisdiction uh, has allowed um, the courts to prevent colleges from expelling people uh, without recourse, which I think is pretty much a good thing. I also think, uh, and this is more broad, I think there aren't very many procedural protections under uh, a lot of university codes and laws. And a result of this is um, even if we agreed that maybe universities could have some discretion about what speech is and isn't allowed on campus, um, I would be doubtful of them to be able to administer this in a fair and neutral way. So in general, I'm for the business of administrators getting out of uh, students' business and mostly relying on uh, things like the police and courts to enforce these sort of things. A good example is my uh, university has uh, makes us makes everyone who wants to be a student leader go through this policy where they've got to go to like four or five different trainings. And in these trainings, they're taught erroneous definitions of what harassment is. One definition of harassment that they define is if I said a sexist joke about you to another one of my friends, that would constitute harassment, regardless of whether it's repeated, regardless of whether there is an objective standard behind this. And so creating these sorts of all-encompassing broad speech codes empower administrators to sort of protect free speech only when it's things that aren't, don't bother them. Like at Yale Law School recently, there, there's that same sort of thing where like the diversity and equity office said that um, something Trent Colbert, who was like head of the Native American um, Cultural Center, um, him writing the word trap house was something that they were going to use to threaten him out of passing his bar exam. Um, I don't know, I just think the bureaucracies like beget bureaucracy and getting the, the government and by extension administrators out of there will be a good step to allowing people to sort of go through the actions and accountability without getting involved in like First Amendment nonsense.
Well, I do know there's at least some truth to this that I've heard um, adjacently, because I know, for example, that the way the campus police are organized, it's usually just a way of preventing bad things that happen on campus from getting into real crime stats. Um, so like campus police are usually very insistent on covering stuff up, on, um, on keeping things quiet, on keeping records internal, because of course, if it gets referred to the actual police, then, you know, uh, they lose, they lose the incentive to control the situation. The regular police do not care if the news publishes a headline rape at, you know, X university. Um, but the campus police absolutely do. So they have an incentive to keep things quiet, encourage people not to press charges. And we've had issues with that, I think, um, mm -hmm. all over the country with people covering stuff like that up. Um, it, it, it does seem, I think, so I, so I guess you could extrapolate that broader where most of these internal campus systems have the negative effect of incentivizing the administration to interpret rules in a way that specifically benefit the university, usually the reputation of the university. Um, mm -hmm rather than adhere to some broader or more consistent set of codes you know there are biases in our legal system of course but it's yeah. not like it's not as though every single city has its own legal code for all laws processed within it not just locally but state and federal and all those can be changed at the discretion of like the dean you know like the mayor or something it's you know there there are systems that keep it from being that um partisan that immediately weighted so with individual i mean with the with the kids then at the um at the university like let's say uh you know like you you're gonna have an administrator um brought on who's who's doing the all lives matter thing and let's say you think that's real racist how do you i mean what what would you think an acceptable way of managing that situation is if you're a student group well that's a great question i want to say i think there's two broad ways that i think can go about it uh, you can go about it Number one, I see no problem with administration condemning acts of racism. I think this is non-controversial that if something really bad happens and uh, people are acting really insensitive, then it is totally fine to ask administration to at least make a statement, if not like a, a, a formal thing. Like a good example of this is two students at the University of Connecticut several years before were yelling the N-word sort of as the penis game um, at the University of Connecticut. Classic. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's something that is immature. It's something that is bad. It is not something that you really want to have. Um, and uh, the school led, uh, like, left um, a couple statements about how bad that was. I thought it was totally fine for the school to do that. What I didn't like was when the school got the police involved, because that's the the next step, even though I do think what they did was pretty objectionable. And if somebody decided to share their names, I really don't see any inherent problem with that. Yeah, because I mean, by the time you're in college, I think it's reasonable for your, you know, your bad behavior to start reflecting on your general persona and not on some like school record. I mean, there are people in college who are 20, 20, like how, if you, if you don't care, how old are you? I'm 21. Yeah, okay. Like, by the time you're 21, you know, historically, for pretty much all of human history, I think everyone would consider, like, 21, yeah, you're an adult. If you're making mistakes like that, that's, that's, uh, that's you know, that's fair game. I think mm -hmm. um, it's really difficult to manage stuff like this, because, on, so, uh, so here's my perspective, I think, in the broader free speech thing. On one hand, I'd like to consider myself a pretty big fan of free speech in a practical sense. Um, 
I think it's really important as a society to preserve it. I've come down really hard on systems that don't have it. Even in like England, where they have much stricter laws for um, liability to slander. Uh, I, I think stuff like that can be really, really bad. Um, all the way up to like China or whatever else. But um, at the same time, I feel like a um, an advocacy for free speech is often kind of... Um, not a dog whistle, but it's it's often invoked as a defense against the idea that there should be consequences for engaging in uh, bad political behavior. You know, so so like a kid will say something like, uh, you know, all lives matter. You know, uh, the black people, blah blah, and people will will push back against that, and the response would be like free speech. I agree with you. I don't think a person who says all lives matter should be instantly treated like some kind of clan member. You know. Uh, but there are, of course, people who do worse things, right? I mean, there are people who, who... Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes, like, when you push back against that, it's really hard to find that line. Because, again, if there are no consequences to speech, then it's not meaningfully free. Yeah, and the good question is, like, what type of consequences take place? And in general, I'm of the belief that there can be consequences for speech that allow it to be free. Like, a good example of this is... Um, after some people made some really racist statements, instead of uh, trying to get them expelled, a lot of students criticized them publicly and wrote articles about that. And this recently happened in a debate between Hillel and uh, Students for Justice in Palestine at UConn. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of controversy on my campus this year, where Hillel was basically handing out um, things talking about how Hamas was bad in sort of a way of um, likening the, their opponents to terrorist types. Huh. And um, SJP was talking about how this was like clearly a biased incident or whatever. I think almost entirely this discussion has been outside the code of conduct and has a, had a lot more to do with the rightness of the actions. And I think it's almost better that it's outside the code of conduct because when we live in a complicated world, where there's a lot of different people and a lot of different values, the best way to approach these is to sort of let the cards fall as they may and to not get the university's administration involved because when there's a lot of conflicts, you're not really going to be able to rely upon the government to tell you, you know, you can't say that most of the time outside a college environment. And I think giving people sort of a different set of rules in college that's almost less speech protective than the rest of the world coddles kids, sets them up for failure, and doesn't uh, allow for a lot of good things to happen. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, which I thought you made a really good point on, was that there are plenty of people who dog whistle because they want to have their views be seen as legitimate. I definitely think this is true. I'm not even going to try to contest you on this. I think there are plenty of people who really only care about free speech for themselves. And that's historically how it's been too, in the sense that the disfavored group of any time usually relies upon the freedom of speech that they ask to be afforded to them. The argument for communists in like the 1960s was we have free speech and this can't be limited solely because you don't like what we have to say. I think that that's been a pretty good norm throughout. We've had a lot of material and moral progress as a result of using free speech and we should continue to you know, uh, enhance it and hold this uh, value highly. Okay, I think, okay, a few things in response to that. 
I think it's interesting how much this discourse has been polluted because I can see people in my chat right now who are suspicious of some of the things you said, even though I don't think there's anything wrong with any of them. I think, um, so I do agree that in terms of, so I guess we, we have like two roads we can go down, right? You know, I think like you, if you have a student who does something fucked up, right? It's, it's racist, whatever. Um, I think that first of all, it, it, it is important to encourage people to respond proportionally. Now, saying that means nothing. These are college students. It's never yeah. going to happen. But it, as a concept, that's important. But also, I think I agree with you in the sense that you're, you're not only setting a better standard, but also a better precedent by trying to manage the social consequences of that behavior rather than appeal to authority to get them removed, you know? So I'm imagining like two scenarios, right? Like say you have a guy who does something like um, racist in a campus, but not like nothing that would warrant harassment, nothing the police would ever need to get involved in, you know? And, and you have two roads. And one of them is which is one in which, as you said, um, you know, there's like a call out in like the student magazine or like it's very well known around campus, like their name gets around, which is fair. There should be consequences, you know, um, and and, the, and there's a social stigma against that person uh, that can often be quite cruel. I think sometimes even crueler mm -hmm. than expulsion. But it's also not only historically what we've done, but it's very real. Um, and I think uh, a much more uh, weighty response i think it has it has a better heft than appealing to the administration to get them fired especially because the latter response has the potential to get them like made into a martyr we see these these news stories all the time you know uh a conservative student on x campus says all lives matter is bullied by anti-free speech students into you know the, the administration fires them or whatever um and uh, and and what that does is now that student is removed, they're isolated from the social stigma. They're more likely to be pushed towards the right or towards whatever circles wouldn't have an issue with him doing whatever in the first place. Um, this isn't a matter of deplatforming because they're students. It's not a platform. It's a matter of social exclusion. Mm -hmm. I think I can agree with that. So what then? What if what if it was a member of administration? What if there was a member of administration, say a professor? Let's leave tenure to the side. I know that gets complicated, but let's say they're, I don't know, they're a history teacher and they're saying stuff about the Native Americans that comes off pretty distinctly like a, uh, like a racist, almost phrenological condemnation of them. You know, like, oh, they weren't smart enough to find out how to make guns, that sort of thing. It's bad history, of course, and it is racist. So if you were in a position like that, like, do you think the students would be in the right to get them fired because that person is in a position of power or? That's a tough one. And I think that largely relates to how much of a group right academic freedom is. So uh, to give some context, so academic freedom is a little bit different than freedom of speech broadly in the sense that that covers more of the group right of professors to sort of research what they want and uh, study what they want, regardless of what administration or the students think. So like a good example of this is um, some would argue that James Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, like the, the people who came after CRT by trying to hoax this, were doing something that is protected. Other people see this as since you're hoaxing information, you're not being a good member of this community and that's sort of a problem. Generally, academic freedom does not 
really accept things like plagiarism. They do not accept things like um, lying on documents or forging numbers. Um, but they generally allow pretty much any subject to be studied. Um, whether or not that's a good thing, I think it's debatable. Um, and I think this is, this is one of the harder cases here in the sense that if you are a public university, um, to some extent you are being subsidized by the public and the public has a broad right to know that what they're sponsoring is worth something of value. Like I would, as a taxpayer, I probably wouldn't want um, Nazism being taught in schools, even though, um, you know, some people might want to teach this. Um, at the same time, though, uh, we shouldn't really have it be easy for trustees and state legislatures to go after individual academics when they say something that's polarizing. A good example is Nicole Hannah-Jones. I know a lot of people uh, are really upset that what she wrote about the 1619 Project and thought she was unpatriotic. I'm not making a stance on whether or not that's the case, but insofar as whether or not this is like an important thing, she's clearly doing her research. And when you let the legislators have control over this, they sort of choose their own biases. So ultimate, ultimately academic freedom is tough and it depends on like how you think about it. I, um, yeah, I, cause so the, the issue here, you know who Noam Chomsky is, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. he, he's a, a like a hard line free speech extremist. He's very much in favor of like, if, if somebody's in education, just they go forward, you know, and it's because he was around back in the 50s when, you know, McCarthyism blacklisting, he saw colleagues being excised from their academic positions because of their political beliefs. Um, nowadays, things are different. I mean, it's it seems like academic exclusion is something that is always going to be abused. Um, mm hmm to the um to the greatest extent possible by whatever bad faith actors are in power you know and i know that it's been done by the left as well in in some circumstances though nothing even close to mccarthyism level you know if we've all had our joker moments but with with regards to how to manage that it it seems like you're right we do pay teachers with taxpayer dollars and schools are social institutions in which we have a common interest in making sure they're being used well to that end i don't i don't know if there's a good top-down approach that isn't just if you disagree too much past this uh if you engage in harassment on this you can talk about like impartial academic councils or review boards but at the end of the day that's always going to be up to the people put on those boards i don't know if there's any rule set that really works there you know because we're not talking about legal standards for behavior we're talking about like the validity of the things that you're teaching and that's just so difficult to substantiate with students though i mean so so you think that like at the, at, at the very least students would have a right to make an appeal to that like if there's a higher administration like hey this teacher is doing x like we think this is unbecoming we don't think this is acceptable for a teacher to be teaching yeah i mean like students have free right uh free speech too on campus and free speech is often intention where a lot of people want to censor each other um but just because somebody wants to censor each other doesn't necessarily mean that that person should be censored as well. Like, you know, the, the paradox of tolerance. Yes. Like if you literally took it at face value, the idea of uh, being intolerant to the intolerant, um, everyone is intolerant in some ways. So we'd have to be intolerant of everyone. That sounds like pretty terrible. Um, like a good example is 
like I'm Jewish and some people don't like Jewish people. Uh, like we, we would start by, we would start by getting rid of those people, but maybe I'm being into like, maybe I'm the one who's being intolerant of these anti-Jewish people. So I guess I'm in trouble too. Like there's not a clear, there's not like a clear person you can appeal to, to make a final decision, which is why I think broadly speaking, we need to give maximum, uh, like deference to decentralization. Yeah. So would you, okay. So wait. So with that, so with that specifically then, so with, with the inability to make a judgment on that, you know, do you think that, uh, there's any validity to the argument that it's, it, it's, it's by default always going to be more valid to exclude the perspectives of people whose positions and behaviors are necessarily anti-free expression themselves. So like, for instance, I think it's a pro-free speech position to say we should censor Nazis on social media, for example, you know, or far-right fasci types, you know, because if you don't and they exploit their presence on those systems to take power, which is what is currently happening and also historically what has happened uh, in other systems, uh, then what you've done is you've gone ahead and destroyed free speech, you know. If you care about protecting it, you have to, um, you know, protect it against the forces inside of a society that would look to destroy it. Same, for example, with, you know, you can be uh, very much pro-peace, but that doesn't mean you can't go to war with, say, Nazi Germany or a country that threatens your peace. It's about managing threats to the systems that you believe in. I would always be in favor, I think, of deferential treatment uh, towards anybody who's calling against you say i mean for jews and nazis for example i mean i don't think it's um i i don't think the paradox of tolerance is much of an issue to work around at all i'm very okay with a bias in that respect i hear that at the same time i want to play devil's advocate a little bit sure. so david so so david cole made the art david cole is like one of the legal directors of the aclu he made the argument that when we get to a point like nazi germany there's no way in hell i would um protect the speech rights of nazis whereas nadine strawson former president of the aclu said something along the lines of these speech codes that have been implemented in large uh, in a large sense have empowered the nazis in the first place and not having had them the counterfactual would be that we probably wouldn't get as far i think nadine strawson's view is a little bit more accurate and the reason why I think it's more accurate is, number one, we forget that in Nazi Germany, there were hate speech laws and the Nazis loved them. Literally, um, a lot of uh, top Nazi people were thrown in jail pre-Third Reich, and they then used the being in jail as a way of putting themselves as martyrs, putting themselves as like really strong people who you know, had something that the liberal state just couldn't handle. And a result of this was that when they took power, they then brutally censored anybody who disagreed, and they were even more capricious about this. Um, by contrast, in Skokie, Illinois, uh, there was this case where a group of neo-Nazis wanted to march through uh, a neighborhood full of Holocaust survivors. Ultimately, this, the, the, the town, uh, Skokie, tried to prevent this from happening, but they were unsuccessful because the ACLU sued them. And when they ended up speaking, or when uh, the Nazis or the neo-Nazis started trying to march through the neighborhood, there was an outpouring of support for the Jewish community. I think in general, by sort of removing the debate from the domain of free speech and instead on the moral righteousness and wrongness of an action, you're almost better able to challenge pernicious, racist, sexist, 
transmisogynistic, anti-Semitic, more like biases. I, I, I just think that like most of the time these ideas don't succeed. And in censoring them, we sometimes push them to more extreme versions and further isolate these people. Oh, I don't know if we um, necessarily push the Nazis towards more extreme positions. I feel like they were going to do that anyway. If you take a look, for example, at how fascists behave in the U.S. today, they'll take the I've been censored pledge, whether or not it's actually happened. There are conservative yeah. YouTubers who will scream about how they're being deprioritized online when in reality, Facebook has shown um, that they're actually getting preferential treatment, like directly. They're actually privileged above the left. So it's it seems like the assumption of victimization is something that's just a part of their ideology. I would just say the state didn't go far enough. They arrested a few of the beer hall putsch types. I mean, you know, Hitler had his little wannabe, but I mean, I'm not talking about uh, a couple of years in the slammer for a beer hall putsch, you know. If the if if in you know 1929 Jews were running around with garrote wire and pistols uh, in in the Weimar Republic killing off Nazi officials, it's undeniable that in a historical sense they would have saved quite a few lives. Now, obviously we can't go around tactically carpet bombing every uh, non-democratic stronghold, but uh, I, I just I feel like the the appeal to peaceful public resistance uh works until it doesn't because there was plenty of peaceful public resistance in the weimar republic as well you know we saw it as well with the invasion of iraq millions of people took to the streets it affected nothing uh it, I, it seems like that tendency like this you know uh, 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 oh go out and protest show them they're wrong you know it, it it's useful but it's also in a box. It's not the limit of potential political action. Um, and it only works until it doesn't. Especially like with, with BLM, right? I mean, you know, Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, General Attorney Barr was looking to invoke sedition, you know, against the protesters. I mean, uh, Trump wanted to send the National Guard in to, to start killing people. The mm -hmm. only reasons that didn't happen were respectively because he didn't win re-election and because uh, General Milley, uh, pushed against Trump on this. I mean, in, in cases like that, you know, um, peaceful protesting wouldn't work. I mean, it, it, it would actually, um, it, it would actually uh, end uh, quite poorly for us, I think. I hear that. But at the same time, I worry that violent protest often doesn't work and can be counterproductive as well. Um, like think of the French Revolution and other stuff. I think there's a strong argument to be made that peaceful protest for better or worse tends to work a little more of the time than um uh violent reaction and and this is this is one of like the really i think tough tensions at the heart of the liberal project which is like on a fundamental level how do you deal with oppressive people uh because there, there isn't a good solution to this because you know sometimes people are battle-hardened and willing to pretty much do whatever to other people and so peace doesn't really work as well. But at the same time, when you go to a violent situation, violence begets violence. And oftentimes this uh, further radicalizes and make, it makes people worse. My, my partial solution to this is to note that the empirical literature suggests that some types of peaceful protest are very good at turning uh, the hearts and minds of almost everyone else against the oppressor. A good example is in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, MLK is a clear one. Like, you know, these people were dressing in suits and they were just marching down the street to just uh, show their uh, civil rights. Um, you know, they were violently attacked 
And these people were clearly upstanding citizens. There was a fair amount of America who was still racist at the time, who was like, I still think black people are subhuman. I still think that these people are gross and bad and whatever. But these people are just marching down the street in suits. Like, is this really how we want to, to go about things? And I think that like sort of appeal to morality, appeal to not like killing innocent people has worked in a variety of contexts from British India to some degree to uh, South Africa to the United States. Um, and I don't think that violent revolution works as often. But if you, if you want to correct me, I'd, I'd love to hear some. No, you're not incorrect at all. I don't have an issue with peaceful protests. They do tend to be more effective. My argument is that they're, they're not the totality of our, you know, our, our political options. I think that sometimes uh, you have to take further steps. A good example would be Reconstruction. You know, After we won the Civil War, we should have rounded up every slave owner and political leader in the South and shot them in the back of the head given them a slave's grave. But we didn't. We let them keep power, and because of that, they maintained that power. Uh, and there is a direct ideological line uh, from, from what they believed before the Civil War to what they believe now. In terms of their political positions, the, uh, the advocates, I mean, I mean, everything, everything that came out of the South after that, uh, the Jim Crow laws, the poll taxes, the grandfather, everything, the daughters of the confederacy it's just it's it's a, a direct ideological descent now the germans were better about this they did a much better job purging nazism from their um from from their government after you know after world war ii but um they could have gone quite a bit farther as well um because there are quite a few neo-nazi groups within the german military and police um, especially, apparently the military quite a bit. They have like paramilitary training camps they have out in the woods where like dozens and hundreds of soldiers and police officers will, you know, they'll, and, and that can be quite dangerous, you know. I mean, uh, brewing radicalism in the military is the, pretty much like the number one way of a military uh, coup arising. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or anything like that. I'm only saying that when you allow some of these beliefs to sit insidiously in, um, in, in a system, I feel like you are leaving a lot on the table. Uh, that sometimes it is acceptable to just flatly excise some types of behavior. We do that to an extent, after all, uh, with protected classes in the US, you know, uh, you can't harass a person over protected characteristics, race, gender, blah, blah, and, and, and you know, that's good. But what that is, is a political decision essentially to treat racism differently from other kinds of being mean. We only arrived at that, and that was a controversial decision when it was made, too. It was controversial when Canada added trans people to those lists of protections uh, back with Bill C-16. We're making political choices there to distinguish, essentially, uh, conservative uh, forms of political bias and to to recognize they're uniquely harmful. I know you can be left-wing and racist. I know, of course, protected classes protect men and white people as well, but you know, the left, I don't think, makes racism or sexism or gender traditionalism its core messaging uh, when, when it comes to these, um, you know, when these types of things. So all I'm saying is we've already decided the paradox of tolerance. We've already decided where we sit on this. We clearly think that some types of behaviors through political weight are worse than others. 
We can push that a little bit farther, though, I think. Social media companies have their TOSs. They're more likely to ban you, you know, if you're far right than far left, because far right types tend to be racist. This is a chilling effect, but I think it's a good one, not just for their profit margins, but collectively for society. And if we can extend that there, legally, you know, uh, what about uh, a, dem a clause which allows Congress members to be excised from their seat if they're found to be um, anti-democratic, that there is like a, some kind of judgment that can be made, not just for sedition or high treason, but if they're anti-democracy, if they disbelieve in the project of democracy, uh, that could be something they could be tried for, specifically as political members. I'm not a legal expert, but I, you, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I would be very worried about that, actually. And let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. So I think democracy in all spheres of life might not necessarily be a good thing. I think, uh, for instance, democracy on something like birth control would probably not poll very well. I think, um, for better or worse, uh, it's the case that most people in the United States are somewhat socially conservative. Um, I would argue that, broadly speaking, uh, attitudes towards race are somewhat more conservative than people let on. And a result of that is if you were to sort of create this like democracy in all spheres of life, I think you'd run into a situation where any bias that had the majority of support would ultimately be in control in large part of what would end up happening. Oh, like, just to, wait, just to clarify, sorry, just so there's no misunderstanding. By anti-democracy, I just mean that politically they're opposed to the concept of like, you know, majority rule, like they're like, or, or, or they're, they're, they're an autocrat. They're opposed to the systems that we use. Um, so what about something like minority rights though, or thinking that some things are just fundamentally non-democratic? Like, you know, because uh, like democracy, um, I think the political scientists who came up with this pretty much said there's a tension between like majority rights or majority rule and minority rights. And how do you really balance that sort of thing? Well, if there were to be any such clause, couldn't it be determined through a court? I mean, right now, we you can try a congressperson for sedition. That would require a subjective assessment of their, uh, you know, aid to the enemy or their um, attempt to prevent the inaction of a law of the United States. Any any legal ruling will have a thousand caveats and you'll have precedent and judicial, you know, uh, opinions to take into consideration. But I think it's valid in concept. I don't think an anti- democracy person a person who doesn't believe in democracy should be able to 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 be in in federal government as a legislator i don't think they should be able to i think it should be as disqualifying as 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 being a traitor or as being um you know a a, a, a immigrant or a spy it's corrosive to our system fundamentally Wait, there's something wrong with immigrants i'm not understanding like i i would think that can you okay. be an immigrant and a congressperson? Oh, uh, yeah, you can. Oh, I'm thinking of the presidency yeah. then. You can be yeah. like a spy then. Like a, no, but uh, I, would, I would argue, though, that on a fundamental oh, level... Oh, sorry, I meant non-citizen. My bad. Like a... Like a okay, like yeah, a no, I was kind okay, of confused. I was, like, I was like, oh, oh, gosh, like, I'm sorry. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're on the same page about that. Um, so regarding this, I, I, think, I think the question is, um, are you willing to overturn democracy to preserve democracy is the question you're sort of asking yourself, right? Is it overturning democracy to try? Um, okay, to, let, let, let's say, let's say for sedition. Uh, let, let, let's, I, I think on some level you could argue it would be 
um, whether or not that's like right or wrong or good or bad. Like if, if there's an elect, so if somebody runs their platform on the idea that too many things are democratic, democracy is a bad thing and they get elected, isn't that the democratic decision-making, which sort of speaks to my issue of minority rights and what sort of things you want to protect from the sphere of democracy in general. Well, at that point, I wouldn't care, right? If somebody wanted to be like, yeah, you know, elect me and I'll bring slavery back. I mean, even if they were elected in a majority, I'd still want them to be ousted. Uh, it's, yeah, we, they, they would, I would um, want them to be ousted too. Yeah. But that's kind of what I'm getting at, though. I'm saying I think in some ways we have anti-democratic provisions that are good. And I think these anti-democratic provisions, like preventing slavery from coming back, from having extremely high hurdles to punish people for like disagreement or dissent, like i.e. your First Amendment, like there, there's plenty of like nonsense that goes through our media sphere, but we have this protection because we don't want to make it easy to uh, easy to punish people who disagree. And in that same sort of vein, that's one of the big reasons why tax compliance is a little bit lower in the United States than in elsewhere, in the sense that we have the burdens extremely high to deal with the fact that oftentimes dominant regimes try to punish people who dissent through tax crimes and through other sort of shiftier uh, doctrines. Right, right. But I'm not talking about some clause where anyone who takes issue with any element of a democracy is, I mean, full on like autocrats. I think it should be considered extremely alarming that we had a near majority of people in our legislature essentially backed an attempt at enacting a coup in the 2020 election. I mean, we're in a position right now where the last election cycle was one in which there, we were vanishingly close to just not having a democracy anymore. So whatever mm -hmm. path we're on right now, the one in which we have limitless tolerance for anti-democrats uh, in, in power, is one which will end in our death. Uh, it'll be four or eight or 12 years from now. Eventually, this system clearly allows, uh, you know, for people to, um, to, to subvert it uh, from within. And I don't think that should even be an option, really. I don't even think that should be on the table. That should be laws against that. If you're going to engage in behavior, I think all the people who um, didn't uh, denounce the you know the jan 6 coup bullshit or the you know the yeah. who won that or the other should have just been ousted by default the same way we did when the civil war took place we ousted the legislators from the southern states that's really interesting i hadn't thought of that before i would also sort of add another issue is when you really centralize power um you run into the situation where greedy people and people who are ethically challenged want to take it like the presidency has become increasingly powerful. Um, and of course, there's going to be a cult of personality behind it. I think uh, on a broad scale, decentralizing, uh, so I guess we'll move slightly away from the, the free speech aspect towards the like, how do we prevent dictators, autodidacts, and powerful people from really controlling and wreaking havoc over people's lives, uh, throwing us back. And I would say that uh, decentralization is a big thing that I think has to do with it. Um, the more things you're in control of, the more power you have. Um, limiting the control of political agencies in general, I think, is a good way of uh, stopping problems. So reviving the non-delegation doctrine would be a good example. I think um, I think it really has to do, at least in this case, with incentive structures. This is one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of market socialism. I think one of the big issues we have right now is that... Um, 
the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are primarily interested in maintaining corporate donorship. They're able to work together to pass bills that keep the military of funding, and they're able to keep the economy more or less on track. Apart from that, they won't work together on anything because the system is arranged in such a way as to maintain a perpetual gridlock. If either side ever actually does the things they're promising to do to, you know, get their voters on board, they no longer have a carrot, and the other side has all the carrots by undoing all those things. So, in reality, the system incentivizes a mutual stalemate uh, and I think the best way that you could do away with that is by aligning their real priorities with their um, with with the priorities they say they have to their voters, which would be through the elimination of the bourgeois. You know, uh, if you have market socialism, if you eliminate the owner class, uh, if everyone is a member of the working class, I don't think there's a fundamental distinction between the promises they would have to make to corporate backers as opposed to the promises they would have to make to their voters. They're the exact same group, you know. I see. So, what, so just to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, you're saying democracy works very well when people are mostly on the same status, but it doesn't work too well when there's a donor class. Yeah, because like, uh, you know, because the interests are, are, are fundamentally different, you know, wealth insulates you from almost every other problem. If you're ultra wealthy, you don't give a fuck about infrastructure, healthcare, anything. You care about taxes, but largely most civic problems are beneath you. Your money cushions you. Uh, so when you have incredibly wealthy people who are made wealthy, not by their labor, but by their ownership of other people's labor, uh, they're, and of course, these are the ones who, you know, um, donate to the campaigns and such. Uh, they're the ones who have those $5,000 a plate dinners with Clintons or whatever. You know, we, we know how this works. Um, their interests will be prioritized. Uh, and that creates a fundamental divide between what politicians do and what they say they do, or at the very least, what they say they care about and what they actually seem to care about. And I think that's a, a huge problem. So here's one of the reasons why I don't completely buy that. And starting with uh, a lot of politicians talk about a lot of things that if they were implemented would probably be utter disasters, right? Like, you know, if we just stayed in Afghanistan a couple of years longer, we could we could build up these bases uh, despite imperialism and all this stuff, um, I think I think constantly politicians know that what they want is often disastrous, and in some ways their lying is better than if we were to end up doing this sort of thing. Um, that, that that's one that's one part of this. So like politicians oftentimes advocate for things that are bad. A good example of this is we should close our border off because like what white people blah 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 this, this is this is a terrible immoral idea that we are going to let the people of the third world to prevent them from having access to our economy uh to basically help incumbents out is an example of like acting incredibly immorally right yeah well i think the reason they do that uh is is because um we, we have a system that encourages people to focus on irrelevant issues. Uh, and now the things you've mentioned here, I mean, for the most part, are, are either centrist or right-leaning things, you know? If we're talking about promises like Bernie were to make, like I stand by most of those, I think. Not oh, all, uh, but sure. most of I, them. Okay, so I would say um, there's plenty of left-wing ideas that are bad too. It's just I wanted to look for some more areas of agreement as opposed to disagreement. I think making college free would be a disaster. I think um, further nationalizing our healthcare system would also be a disaster. Um, I'm sure we probably are going to disagree about this. And probably, but, but but let's but f focusing on the fundamentals. You know, 
when it comes to the most ostentatious things that politicians advocate for, I think often they do so in an effort to distract people from the material reality of their situation. So say, for example, like closing the border. Historically, immigration fear-mongering has been promoted by politicians in line with the wealthy to distract workers from noticing why their wages are being lowered. You know, if, if, if your wages aren't going up, you know, uh, Fox News is telling you it's because of Mexicans coming over the border. Math's been done. That's not the case. Uh, immigration does not lower wages of native workers. It doesn't. It just doesn't. But this is a, yeah, it's a 200-year-old myth, and it keeps coming up over and over. It's not an accident, you know. It's the wealthy and, and the, the people who work for them are deliberately stoking xenophobia and racism in an effort to get people to look at, oh, like, why are your wages low? Well, it's not us, you know? It's not because we keep lowering taxes and won't raise the minimum wage and et cetera, et cetera. We've killed unions, you know? It's because of them. But all of these distractions fade if we're no longer playing this game of really supporting the corporate benefactors while secretly supporting or, or while pretending to support, you know, the, the, the interest of the voter. If you get rid of that, you have, I think, a much more frank, uh, much more plain ideological uh, discussion. And would people sometimes pledge to invoke things that are bad? Sure. But it's not like that doesn't happen already anyway. Bad policies get put through all the time. And the lack of any policies being put through, the... Um, the, the the gridlock in Congress is the most destructive thing of all. The fact that we can't even agree to a fucking infrastructure bill when this country is crumbling is like, like, like this gridlock is insurmountable. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon either. Democrats win one or two seats. You know, Republicans win this many of the other. Republicans will probably do better in the upcoming midterms. So our chance at winning the Senate will go down. Like it's this, you know, and it will never change. Adding more parties won't fix that either. Yeah, so your argument is pretty much things will never change because uh, the rich basically try to keep their status. And the way that they keep their status is through keeping things gridlocked uh, while lowering taxes. I, I, I don't really agree with this characterization of the world, but I wanna make sure I'm understanding like your perspective before I respond. Am I mostly getting what you're getting at? The, the gridlock and the, the ideological scapegoating uh, keep people interested in meaningless, um, usually like, partisan bickering, culture war bullshit, yeah. uh, while the central goal of maintaining the military-industrial complex and the corporate apparatus uh, are more or less run unabated with, with fairly minimal interference. Yeah, I agree with you that the military-industrial uh, complex is really terrible, and similarly the problem of private prisons is ultra-bad. We're kind of forgetting an elephant in the room, which is public prisons and uh, the public-industrial complex. Um, I don't think all of it's private. I think on a fundamental level, a lot of bureaucrats gain a lot of benefits and a lot of votes from jobs uh, associated in these areas. And because the government increasingly captures larger parts of the economy, freeing this sort of thing by minimizing the size of government would be something that would be progressive, would be something that would help uh, specifically the poor and would free up capital to produce better things. I don't think what it's industries? the poor. What? So, okay, so, so a good example of this is um, our meatpacking industries, because of the regulatory burdens, there only exists like four or five meatpackers in the United States. Um, this creates a lot of concentration and a lot of wealth for the people who own these sorts of things. Like a lot of the economy is captured because people who previously would work in these industries are sort of kept out because of higher barriers to entry. 
What I'm suggesting is when you minimize the power of government, because government often relies on the bigness of corporations and other things to influence them, reducing the power of government also reduces the power of corporations. Well, this wouldn't really apply if there was no corporate class, right? I mean, if it's all the um, working class, this particular distinction, the yeah, need but I also to... Think that, I also think that there's a lot of value to being able to hire other people and to find new ways of doing things. Uh, liberty upsets patterns, and it's really good when people are able to build things and create new things. Like if I wanna take a loan from somebody and I have this great idea for a product, I'm more able to do that in a place where I can get access to capital versus not having access to capital. Right, I'm not, think, well, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. Worker ownership doesn't mean government control. It would still be a private corporation. It would just be owned by those who work there. If they wanna go get investment <laughs> or if they want to, you know, uh, okay trade IPs sure. or do this, that, or the other. I am in favor of the nationalization of a great many industries, though. Healthcare being one of them, sure. Um, a few others, transportation, just stuff with externalities, mostly. Maybe our energy industry, though that would be a bigger get. Um, but yeah, with, with it, it seems like... So I'll agree with you that the corporations are empowered somewhat by... Um, a big government. Well, yeah, by preferential treatment by the government, but it goes both ways, right? the government and corporations work together to maintain a sort of class monopoly over the interests of the state and its citizenry. And I don't think lessening the government really fixes that problem because it just creates a power vacuum for corporations to fill. Every regulation is potentially, you know, an interplay between the two institutions. But when you reduce these regulations, you have what? I mean, you have corporations working to fill the void all those meatpacking plants the situation they're in now ain't great but the situation they were in a hundred years ago with no regulation or oversight was definitely a lot worse but i also think you're forgetting about the major wealth effects you know as we have a society that becomes more wealthy because we've uh, even marxists acknowledge that like capitalism created like a bunch of wealth and stuff like not all this went to corporations some of it did but i'm saying i think the biggest like group that is able to claim these benefits is not the corporate class, but the political class. Um, and the political class often creates incentives for corporations to sort of play along with them, um, which I think like this is, this is an interplay. We're both agreeing on that. Um, but I think what we're disagreeing on is what the ideal would be. And so like, let, let's go back to like the fundamental argument about well, worker we could ownership. maintain economic growth, couldn't we? I mean, I uh, with if we had worker cooperatives, I think there's look, a lot of. I have no, I have oh, no problem with. I have no problem with people setting up worker cooperatives voluntarily. I don't think that very many of them would be set up though. And I think a good example of why this is the case is like the kibbutzes in Israel um, and how limited amounts of worker co-ops in the United States. Is there anything that is stopping worker co-ops from like existing in the United States now? Uh, you're you're going to get me on my tangent. Yes. Uh, okay, so first of all, there are there are tens of thousands of them in the country. Uh, there is a uh, the the legal structures that we use to establish them are weighty and unconventional. It's like a one size fits all package. You know, we have a ton of different types of corporate structures legally for non worker cooperatives, but for worker cooperatives, you're it's harder to set them up. Banks uh, tend not to loan to them because people don't know much about worker cooperatives, so they're not seen as trustworthy ventures, in spite of the fact that they are more trustworthy, at least in terms of resisting price shocks, uh, than traditional corporations are, especially at smaller levels. Uh, additionally, the biggest barrier is a knowledge gap. Um, the difficulty with establishing a bunch of worker cooperatives is that a lot of people don't even really know it's an option. 
when I say like worker cooperative to an average person, I mean they'll they might say like Costco, which isn't a worker cooperative, but you know they've they've heard some things like Winko, which is sort of um, it's it, you can't really know about these systems um, or you can't apply them until you know about them. I mean, after all. It's not as though there weren't efforts at establishing democracies all throughout medieval Europe, you know. Centuries and centuries of feudalism with pockets of democracy squashed. In those cases, often they were squashed militarily. But nowadays, uh, worker cooperatives are squashed by preferential legal and uh, IRS treatment, along with a monopoly on publicly distributed information that assures people a much greater level of trust in traditional corporate structures. I think that not only should we make it easier to start cooperatives, I think we should incentivize them um, through taxation. It's better for the economy because worker cooperatives, uh, by being more stable, by being generally local, tend to stimulate the local economy, provide higher wages to their workers, and generally like revitalize areas that have been scooped out by like big box stores. Um, and, and additionally, I think that it's ethically preferable because uh, worker cooperatives are democratic and I quite like democracy. Okay, so I have no problem making it so that tax disincentives are taken away. I think the level of incorporation like costs are too high in this country. And I think that, that this creates barriers to entry. I'm doubtful that many worker co-ops would succeed. Um, and that, that's just sort of how I, I see the world in the sense that I'm inclined to think that um, most people don't really like doing management aspects. And so they sort of outsource that to like a single person. Typically the process of doing this creates uh, an issue where that person has a little bit more power, which tends to magnify itself. So I think in some ways, like, you know, democracy sort of creates a situation that looks sort of hierarchical. Um, but I would add that I think the, the fundamental issue isn't the hierarchy as much as it is the freedom to sort of change up how you want to do things. Um, so let's say I work at a worker cooperative and I save my wages and I use the saved wages to create um, uh, a corporation or something. And I am, you know, able to be more profitable because I figured out a better way of doing something and other people haven't really adopted that. As I grow, I hire some people and I uh, change the, I, I, I hire people and I change uh, the employment numbers in the sense that more people are working at companies that are set up like my company versus companies that are set up like work cooperatives. My fundamental argument is I think both of these things are compatible with broadly capitalism. And the benefit of this is that um, it is a little bit more open and freeing than a situation where you have to only work in worker co-ops. Well, if you went off and struck off on your own, I mean, you would still be um, uh, you could still do all of that, couldn't you? I mean, if you just hired other people, they would just be a part of the worker cooperative, but it wouldn't impede the, um, the process of innovation. Um, you could stay in the original or go off and strike in your own, but either way, you're, you know, creating a new corporate structure. And if people want to get involved in a democratic fashion, I don't think that impedes your ability to innovate. Yeah. So my argument is that like, I have no problems with worker co-ops existing and I have no problem with not giving them any disincentives with regards to taxation. What I'm saying about them is that worker co-ops can spontaneously become more capitalist by nature. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Oh, well, I don't like capitalism very much. So yeah, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, okay, so your, your big thing is freedom, right? You think that socialism is more freeing than capitalism. Yes. 
And what I'm saying is socialism sort of spontaneously becomes capitalism in a free society. And the reason why it becomes- Well, wait, to be, to be clear, in a free, by, by that perspective, uh, democracy becomes a slave state in a free society. If you have the freedom to become a warlord and start rounding people up. You're talking about the freedom to set up institutions that remove others' freedoms. But by my perspective, the true freedom is a system which denies anyone the ability to strip others of theirs. And by creating a, a, a traditional autocratic corporation, I feel like you're, uh, you're, you're, you're recessing, you're reverting back to an institution that relies on exploitation. But would you almost, by definition, be restricting people's autonomy to decide to work for me as opposed to the worker co-op? In a, in a traditional, um, yeah. Like, so for instance, well, like, for instance, like right now, you know, you can't set up a business that doesn't follow OSHA regulations, you know? That's, yeah, and OSHA is like literally unconstitutional. I strongly disagree. Have Don't you we read need Cass people to be safe? I mean, have you read Cass Sunstein's work? The issue with it is the non-delegation doctrine. So basically, like, you're supposed to be able to have rules that are consistent and are able to be enforced. The reason why OSHA is unconstitutional is not that they don't have any standards, it's that these standards are entirely able to be changed and decided without any congressional oversight or bureaucracies uh, or through any like democratic means. Well, I don't know the specifics of, um, of their implementation, but the, the, the concept of... Um... The, the concept of having an obligation for corporations to maintain a certain standard of safety is something that I think is quite beneficial. Yeah, I'm pulling up the thing just, just, for, just for context, if you wanted to look at it some other time. Sure. Um, yeah, it was originally written by Cass Sunstein. Um, but wait, your argument is that it's not inherently immoral to create a minimum standard that people must live by. So why would the standard include... Um, not being able to be hired by someone. I could understand like making sure that people aren't being starved to death or beaten or something along those lines, but what is inherently wrong with deciding to work under somebody? Well, the standard is democracy. You can't create an institution in which you have sole control uh, and ownership of that institution. Wait, why though? Like I'm saying, okay, so I mean like my house, like if I was to build a house and I didn't invite anyone in, mm -hmm. like I would, um, I would own the house, right? right. And if I, uh, if I asked somebody if they wanted to like live in the house with me, uh, rent free or something, but they would have to follow my rules, um, would that inherently be wrong? Uh, I don't think so. Depend. I would suppose it depends on what the rules are, but not inherently. Yeah, wrong, like though. I don't know. I was like, maybe, maybe I was a stickler, a teetoler. I was like, I don't like drinking. I don't like smoking. Don't do it anywhere near my house. Um, like, like that would clearly not be wrong, but it would clearly not be democratic either. Yeah. Well, uh, the difference is in a Marxian sense, we distinguish between personal and private property. A personal property is something that you own for your own personal individual human use. And as such, I do think you have a right to, uh, uh direct control over it, your toothbrush and what have you. But with, with private property, like the, you know, the production of, um, of, a uh, um, corporation this is a legally and economically distinct entity i i do want to be clear though because i've been speaking a bit in generalities but i do think that if you were to have like some standard for establishing worker cooperatives i think it would be acceptable to say that you would only mandate them after a given size like uh you know if you have 12 people who work here at that point if you want any more employees you need 
it to be democratically controlled um, and democratically owned. Uh, but beyond, but beneath that point, you know, because logistically, if two people want to work together on a venture, it, it it's, I think, a bureaucratic um, uh, uh, trifle, really, for, to get involved as a cooperative. I think that'd be a bit dumb. But on a fundamental level, I'm not understanding why we are overturning people's autonomy, though. And and you could, is, is it just because broadly democracy is important? Well, yeah, we we do this with feudalism, don't we? We have democracies in a state, you know, we have our borders, but um, I, I wouldn't want people to be able to sort of organically develop feudal systems. We've kind of had that with corporate towns in the United States, not like fully, but in practice, very similarly, you know, you have the, you have the company shop and, you know, you work for what you work for, like, you know, uh, Bezos bucks and you buy at the shop and so on. But, and I think those are horrible. And I do think there are some laws against that now. But uh, with regards to corporations, I mean, they're traditionally an autocratic system. So what we should do, I think, especially since the divide between the working class and the owning class is so significant, we should focus on uh, eliminating it by ensuring that at least the vast majority of our corporations adhere to democratic principles. I think it would be very politically beneficial and it would increase the quality of people's lives significantly. I also think, by the way, that eventually... There would be no need for such a mandate because no sane worker would ever choose to work for a venture uh, in which they weren't guaranteed the legal and political rights uh, of a worker cooperative, you know. But in the early stages, uh, certainly now, I feel like, you know, some legal pressure could be helpful. See, I'd be doubtful, though. And I guess the reason why I'm doubtful is, are you familiar with, like, the Wilt Chamberlain thought experiment? Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah, so Robert Nozick, uh, a famous philosopher, made the argument that let's say uh, we started in a situation where everyone was entirely equal in terms of distributed amount of money. And there's this guy, Wilt Chamberlain, he's in the NBA. He says, I've decided that, um, you know, I'm going to make sure that people who come to my games pay an extra $5 for this ticket, and that money's just going to me. Um, if he does this and there is an unequal wealth distribution, we don't consider it inherently problematic, do we? I'm sorry, Would you? could you remind me by what method the uh, inequality arrived? He acquires yeah. the money from the rest? Yeah, so he okay, says- Okay, just uh, making sure I didn't, that I didn't miss like some, okay, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sure. I'm so he basically says before uh, starting the season, I've decided I think I should be paid more. Mm -hmm. And my team agrees. Um, so what I'm gonna do is when I'm gonna play a game, if you wanna see this game, you have to put an extra $5 into the ticket and that $5 just goes to me because I'm an awesome basketball player. Mm -hmm. Is there something wrong with like a large amount of people doing this and the corresponding level of inequality after? Yes. There is? Yeah, absolutely. On, on what basis? Because I think you, we're, we're presupposing the existence of political and economic structures that validate that currency. We're not just talking about like nuts and, you know, twigs out in a the forest. There's a, the, the, the currency is distributed for a reason by a state. The state distributes it to tax it later. But it also serves a broader function of enabling trade and ideally, I, I would think, uh, mandating a, a certain level of 
um, of quality of life for people who have it, you know? I mean, if, if you have a currency and you, you want it to circulate and you want people to have access to whatever resources it can provide. And I think that if we're talking about like very isolated scenarios like this, um, obviously in practice, what we're, what we're talking about is people with an inequitable access to resources, whether they be physical or service-based, acquiring more and more wealth through it. The issue with this is that ultimately what we're talking about is a system and a pattern and a standard where we permit significantly greater levels of political power to some individuals or institutions uh, through uh, non-meritous means. I don't think being good at basketball should mean that you get to acquire a tremendous amount of money, which should mean that you get to have brunches with politicians, which should mean that you have the ability to influence policy more than the average citizen. I am a communist. At the end of the day, I don't want any of these issues, you know. But the fact that people can acquire money through non-corporate, you know, exclusivity terms now is uh, uh, something that I have to put up with until we, we get to labor vouchers, I guess. Yeah, but I guess what I'm getting at about this is your argument is the only reason why it's bad is because of the level of it affecting government, right? Well, like somebody... Right, because in, in, in practice, you know, uh, it, it's it's not just like we're trading for jawbreakers at an identity, right? Where we, you know, where it's, there are consequences to um, inequitable wealth distribution. Yeah, so would it be a problem if it was only a little bit or or if it is just like the, the level of wealth uh, differential is really high and that that's something that like grants a lot of power of him over other people is, is that is that the fundamental issue if you could if if you could remove the subsequent political control and we're just talking about you know um uh uh just the money that people have and everyone still has a basic standard of living of an acceptable quality and the additional wealth gives no one more political power than another given all of those conditions can you repeat the first two again i'm sorry yeah sure no additional uh political power for anyone no power to control others lives uh and everyone is guaranteed a basic standard of living no matter what regardless of whatever transactions they make if you accept those three preconditions then at that point we're we're, we're not even really talking about capital anymore i think we're just talking about sort of you know vouchers or tickets but under those circumstances no i don't think there's necessarily an issue Okay, because to me, it seems like your issue is more about like a sufficientarianism approach. So maybe like the Amartya Sen human capabilities uh, style, where it's like, you have to make sure that everyone has access to a bare minimum, but sort of whoever is past that minimum doesn't matter as long as everyone reaches that minimum. And so I, I guess the, the thing that it seems to me is important in, in this context is now a question of what's most likely to get everyone to this minimum in the first place. And that seems like the, the fundamental debate about whether or not like market socialism would be good. Because if market socialism slows us down from getting to that minimum standard of everyone being able to mostly live their lives how they want, then um, that would be bad. But if, if it was good, if market socialism turned out to be a more productive system, um, and because it was more productive, it tended to lift more people up to like the sufficient standard. That would be like a reason to, to adopt it, right? Yeah. Well, well, it's also about um, making sure no one has political dominion over another. If the so you could have you know a, a capitalist society where um, you know everyone has a, a, a substantial um, 
social safety net, you know, like middle class existence for everyone, no matter what. Mm -hmm. but, like a Scandinavian system, right? Right. But they would still be slaves in that state. Uh, they would still be uh, just pawns to be moved around by people with far more power. It's not sufficient merely for them to live good lives. They must live politically actualized lives. And in order for that to happen, there has to be no other more powerful class or set of institutions um, whose political will supersedes theirs. You know, it doesn't matter how well off they are, ultimately, if they're still lesser. So I think that even you could make an argument even, and I don't think this is true, mind you, but even if uh, rampant uh, private ownership was more beneficial to our economy it would it, even if it was better at allocating those resources fairly i still don't think it would solve that other critical issue um well, you could sure that address Wait, just, i just, just want to make sure my understanding uh -huh. yeah your argument your argument is that like this political actualization of having control over one's life is essential and removing that even if like capitalism was better at growth would be disastrous on the basis that um, it would undermine, like, the ability to live a fully actualized life, right? Yeah, well, and, and, and real democracy, I think, functionally. Oh, the little clicking came back. Would you mind moving the back the way you did earlier? Um, yeah, of course. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, oh, no, uh, just to hear it again. It sounds like a, like a little clicker wheel, like when the baseball card and the bicycle stokes. Is it, is it, I think it might be your desk hitting the back of your wall like very very quickly i used to have that mic problem back uh my first thing like you could pull the desk out like a tenth of an inch and it might not do that yeah let me try that is that better huh no I, no i still hear it i wonder why that the, the thing you did before made it stop instantly i i don't i'm gonna back up a little bit i'm gonna see if that makes a difference i'm also gonna adjust is that better no, I'm afraid I still hear it. I think, I wonder if it's something internal. Maybe you should just give your laptop a smack. Honest to God. Oh yeah, let's do it. Oh. Uh, that better? Uh, yes. Oh yeah, I'm telling you, the, the, the smack did it. Okay. Uh, yeah, that, You're yeah, right. that, um, that actually worked immediately. Um, uh, uh okay. Um, okay. So, uh, sorry, you said you wanted me to say something, clarify something. I didn't mean to. Yeah, so just to make sure I'm understanding, because I'm, gl I'm glad that I feel like this debate's been really productive and it feels like we are really trying to understand what each other is saying. Yeah, no, I'm having, um, I'm having a great time. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, so your argument is that in order to live a fully actualized life, that life needs to be political. And the reason why it needs to be political is because the idea of somebody having more power seems to like fundamentally be unjust yeah it would it would be the same argument that i would make for um for the soviet union uh because you know for all their claims to worker democracy in reality most of the economic decision making was made through the the party you know um now the the party the way you got elected to the communist party was complicated and variable but they were essentially an elite political class and i really don't think there's much of a distinction between what they did and what capitalist owners do in our system today uh the only difference is that the methods by which you become a member of that group in our country is much more transparent you know um and there's not a direct membership card it's just a sort of general participation in the system of control which exists above the working class of course with the communist party they were all official about it and they had their uniforms but uh, in both cases i would say as long as there's another group making the real decisions 
um, an unelected group at that, mind you. We don't elect our wealthy, uh, and we don't elect our, well, they didn't elect their party members. Um, then you're not really living in a democracy. It's like a pseudo-democracy. Uh, they'll always be the ones telling you what to think through corporate media. They'll always be the ones limiting your choice in the Overton window, uh, manufacturing your consent. They have every incentive to do so because their interests are set and not yours. So they can give you any narrative they want as long as it leads you to, you know, to vote for whatever perceived policies you think they'll enact. Okay, so you think that uh, this creation of, like, let's call them an ownership class, because that has some uh, associations of capitalism, but also with uh, government more broadly. And it's something that maybe I don't agree with, but at least I can understand how you're coming at this. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so, so, so to me, it seems like the issue of ownership is that if you are in a free market system, for the most part, the way that you obtain this wealth is from having to get people uh, to consent to purchase things from you with the amount of currency they have, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems like the the level of like voluntariness is a pretty key distinction between maybe a private property regime versus a public property regime. Um, and I'm curious if you don't if you think that's illusory, and maybe why you might think that. I think it's illusory, um, in large part because it is inevitable that both arise, and there's not really a relationship between the products we want and the people we want to be powerful, right? I mean, people buy products for a million reasons. What we have accessible to us, what's cheapest, what appeals to our personal biases, what advertisements we've seen. But we don't buy something thinking, I hope that, you know, Derek Johnson on the board of investors does a great job next year explaining to the president why they believe they should, you know, enact subsidies like there's there's a complete disconnect. It's true that with the, you know, the Soviet model, if you have, you know, the party infrastructure, you don't even have that. But you can make an argument that and historical accounts vary, I mean, but there was some pseudo democracy even to um, party decision making and electorate because many of these party members would claim to be and sometimes actually be, you know, try to be representatives of what they thought were the interest of whatever, you know, group or commune they came from. In, in either case, I think the emergence of a separate class is inevitable. But the only separate class, uh, or if you could even call it one, would be the people we directly elect to directly do the jobs for us. And that everything beneath that should just be one massive, ubiquitous horde of people who have identical economic desires. Politically, I mean, we'll all bicker and, you know, they'll still be racists and anti-racist and shit, but at least the arguments will be genuinely oriented around those beliefs rather than a proxy for the economic positions we're always sort of gated into. You, you know what I mean? I hear you, but I'm not sure I agree with you. And I guess the reason why I'm a little bit doubtful hmm? is because I think uh, there are non-arbitrary reasons for differences in wealth on the basis of productivity and stuff. So I, I am a firm owner, right? I'm not actually one now. Um, but in the process of becoming a firm owner, as I'm trying to go about creating this business, if I am going to be doing something that is not of use to my fellow man, I'm not going to be making very much money if we are in a free market because that person has to want to agree to work with me. And what I'm saying- How did you come it, to be that firm owner? How to come, well, well, number one, in well, let's say we were in like socialist collect, uh, or in market socialist land, I um, save some money 
And in my spare time, I opened a business on Amazon, but it's socialist Amazon, Samazon. And in socialist Amazon, I uh, started selling sneakers that I started drawing, right? Like, you know, maybe, maybe I made these look really cool. And because I was pretty good at this, I ended up making a fair amount of accrued, like, interest and benefit from the labor I did. And then maybe I invested it in a mean of production, like something like uh, a shoemaking machine, a boondoggle. And when I made this boondoggle, um, it allowed me to make more stuff. And uh, there's still like a high demand for this. Um, in this sort of situation, I, I don't think like act to the point of owning a mean of production is inherently wrong. Nothing you've described thus far I take issue with. The market socialism, I mean, I guess the step I want to make at first, it doesn't involve total decommodification. If you're doing this work on your own, I think that's a legitimate use of your capital. If you brought other people on, though, eventually I would expect it be a cooperative endeavor. Yeah, what I'm getting at, though, is I don't think there is a moral distinction between somebody who is like hiring a couple people who all decide that this is the best action for them and working in um, like a socialist collective. I think insofar as you limit the power of politics, this isn't a problem. Um, well, and I also think, what? I was also gonna say- No, no, you, sorry. please, my apologies. <laughs> I was also gonna say, I think insofar as capitalism has been pretty good at creating a lot more wealth in society and has been pretty good at helping the extremely poor, um, I consider that mostly a good thing. Okay, well, it's the issue there are a few things, ultimately, I guess a couple of layers um, built out here with regards to my, my, my preferences. With, um, it's undeniable that capitalism has been a beneficial economic step from feudalism. I wouldn't deny that. Or mercantile capitalism, if you want to be specific. But um, I, 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 eventually things change. I think the issue is that liberalism, uh, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, talked big about quite a few values, you know, um, reason, autonomy, liberty, fraternity. But capitalism is a system by which we use economic abstractions to secure levels of power for individuals comparable to that of feudal warlords. Now, you can't kill people, admittedly, but Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have more power right now than arguably uh, any non-monarch any aristocrat, any merchant ever could have in any system prior to the modern world. And of course, I mean, some of that's inevitable. We've grown stronger as a species. But also, uh, there is their arrival at where they are is equally democratic. Now, you could argue it's more meritous, you know, that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos worked harder to arrive at where they are. Um, but uh, I, I don't care. Because at the end of the day, if merit is the... Uh, is is the the characteristic by which we arrive at political power? I mean, is is Napoleon's reign just? I mean, you could look back Alexander Macedonia. I mean, you can find plenty of exceptionally competent, meritorious people, but I would never excuse what they did because they were good at what they did. Democracy is a system which ensures that power is brought about by the mandate of the people. But we have, in addition to our political system, this entirely separate system of power, which sometimes seems to be way more relevant because I don't interact with my government, ever. I go to the DMV sometimes and I vote every two years, but apart from that, not really. Whereas economically, if I wasn't doing this live streaming, I and everyone else would be working eight hours a day. 
we have direct contact with an autocratic system over which we have no control on a daily basis. But the government, which is democratic sometimes, is, you know, out there vaguely. Um, I take issue with this because I think that what we're really doing is we're building up the old power structures with a veneer of liberal democracy stretched over it. You can, you know, it, it, these systems all work on individual point by point econ 101 chart tables, you know, like you build, you buy a shoemaker and such. And I agree with the right to do that. But ultimately, we know where Bezos is. We know where Elon Musk is. We know that these people have considerable influence in leveraging uh, 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 not just political power, but public interest. You know, Elon Musk is out there making like libertarian arguments about why he shouldn't have to pay more taxes. And the only reason anyone gives a fuck about what he has to say is because when he says that he's referring to a group of people that includes him and a couple hundred others, you know, like imagine if Elon Musk was not the owner but rather an elected representative sitting at the top of the board of, you know, Tesla cooperative, right? Would he still be powerful? Undeniably. And he would probably have quite a bit more money than me, too. No getting around that. But at the end of the day, the way he makes his money and the way he spends his money, the systems he's a part of are identical to the lowest worker in his company. And if he did poorly, if he was disliked, if he treated his workers poorly, he would be ousted, as Jeff Bezos would have by now, I imagine, many times, given the condition of his, you know, uh, facilities. The, so there, there, are, there are so many distinctions here. I'm not trying to ramble over you or anything. It's just, it's, um, it's such a fundamental paradigm shift. And I know that there are a lot of gaps to fill in. That's why I'm so insistent we should at least incentivize these structures now, you know? And maybe it'll I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I hear what you're saying, but I think a large reason why people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are powerful in large part is due to regulatory burden in the sense that if you, if it is really hard to start a business and there are only a few people who are incumbents who have a lot of money and a lot of sway then you're going to see a situation where there's a fair amount of exploitation. You yourself are right in assuming that Jeff Bezos has a pretty big advantage by virtue of the fact that he's got a ton of money and he sometimes controls entire towns. What I'm suggesting, though, is when you decrease the amount of regulation, you make it easier for competitors to enter the market. What, and what competitor I, could compete with Amazon? Like, What regulations would you want to remove? Sure, sure. Okay. So um, I think a lot of the stuff about how sales tax is collected is one small thing. I think uh, the amount of zoning costs. So like, uh, are you, you're familiar with zoning, right? Yeah. Zoning is really expensive and it makes it a lot harder to own property. Um, a, bit, a big part of this is when the costs of like renting out a place are significantly higher because of these zoning things that pushes like low margin businesses at the margin out of business. What I'm saying is when you like let a thousand flowers bloom and when you have a lot more, I guess, varied competition, you see the situation where this level of exploitation decreases. An well, interesting- I, I'm in favor of, don't get me wrong, I want nationalized housing because the state is incentivized to produce far more houses than you know construction companies would be. It's a less risky investment, but- Wait, but I'm saying that like nationalizing housing isn't the solution. I'm saying the solution is to deregulate zoning in the sense that, that I think that is the fundamental thing that is like the limiting principle. But to put what where, like what would we, 
Yeah, sure. Okay, so we we have it where if you buy a plot of land, you aren't able to use it how you want to use it. Like that fundamentally infringes upon people's political liberties about how they want to build their houses, etc. You know why you see a bunch of McMansions? It's because the, uh, the the city zoning boards are like, we want to build it this way. Uh, they limit things to single-family housing. Um, they don't allow there to be much cha uh, choice about whether or not you want to build uh, like factories on one floor, housing above, stuff like that. There, there's very little um, cooperation and well, there's very little bargaining within it uh, to yeah. do stuff. I mean, a lot of those zoning regulations were brought about through like post-war development that were like super incensed with artificially manufacturing the American dream. I don't want no zoning. I want better zoning. I want really strict mixed use zoning. And I want to cut down all those ugly skyscrapers in my cities. I think I um, skyscrapers, I got to be honest with you. I think it's good that like, you know, you can have a lot of people living in a small geographic area. I think they're alienating. But uh, we but that but that's a whole separate conversation. I, I think um, I, I think um, uh, what was that? Yeah, but what does this have to do with like, it seems like the history of capitalism has been the consolidation of industry, you know? I always hear this like, well, if it weren't for regulation, you know, somebody would have stepped up and done this by now, but not really. All the banks that are around right now are ancient. They're all like mergers of banks from a hundred years ago, you know? Uh, but, yeah, but also the state literally controls who can be a bank. Like the state literally says, we have charters for six banks. And not only do we have charters for six banks, but in the 2008 bailout, literally like the the president of finance at in the senate basically called all the heads of the banks up and were like you're all going to take this loan despite uh how responsible you as individuals are what i'm saying is the way that the state exerts a lot of power is by preventing additional entrants from entering the market but what and i'm saying what could you do to compete with like say for example amazon i mean what so Amazon's relatively new because it's disruptive and it's a product of the invention of the internet. You know, a lot of stuff came about because the internet enabled a whole bunch of business that couldn't have existed prior. But nowadays, like, it's like we, we, we've seen what the consequences of uh, no regulations are. You have mergers and mergers and monopolization. Um, and there's just a startup cost that is impossible to overcome when you're dealing with some of these like, you know, mega companies, uh, Walmart has gutted middle America because every city withers and, or sorry, every, every store withers and dies when, when they show up there and underprice everyone because they have access to, you know, a greater scale of economy than any small business ever could. Uh, it's just like, if you look at all the corporate mergers, like more and more every year, all around the world, more things are done by smaller companies. All of our food is made by like six companies. And a lot of the ways in which the state regulations benefit these corporations, there are also regulations that have prevented them from getting even more powerful, pre preventing them from monopolizing, by preventing them from doing this, that, or the other. Like it, for every way in which these corporations have benefited from, uh, you know, uh, the government, uh, I feel like there's two in which they've been hampered from growing even stronger. Um, I would I would disagree with you and point out that, okay, so our antitrust legislation has evolved over time. It used to be like the Kenneth Arrow, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, bigness is problematic, but it sort of switched over. Um, I think this guy named Richard Posner wrote something called The Paradox of Antitrust, where he pretty much makes the argument that uh, sometimes bigness is not worse. Um, and we've sort of moved in that direction before, but 
but prior we didn't really see much more increased wealth from like cutting companies down to size. Um, but but I, I think the more fundamental issue though Wait, is do you do you want megacorps then like monopolies and such? Um, first of all, I'm not sure all megacorps are monopolies. I think some of them are. Um, but I think the, the the fundamental issue that determines whether something is a monopoly is not its size but the level of like regulatory barrier standing in the way of new entrants. Well, that's not, well, that's like a meaningful monopoly though, right? Like even if there aren't regulatory barriers, it doesn't matter if your business can't survive. It, you need oh. to be able to survive in that marketplace. Well, I, I, I think it's okay for like, you know, competition to winnow out most, um, most firms in a given marketplace. Like for instance, like MySpace no longer exists and Facebook is like the prime social network um, is not inherently problematic. It, it, it sort of gets a little bit problematic when um, it's like there are laws against building certain types of social media company and it takes like thousands of hours to file paperwork to start up this sort of thing. But even if you um, could start one, it wouldn't succeed. I mean, I think it's it, an yeah. issue all our online contact is controlled by like four or five corporations that all have backroom deals with the feds to give all of our private info to them and to advertisement companies. Yeah, no, and it's a great way of circumventing our Fourth Amendment rights. I think it's fourth. Um, but like, but, but like, like functionally, even if there are no barriers to doing something, it doesn't really matter if you can do it if there's not much of a chance of you succeeding, right? Like, well, e like if Walmart opens in your small town and they deliberately underprice everything so that they can drive out the competition because they have billions in reserve to draw upon, you can legally start a business there, but it won't work. You'll go out of business like everyone else. It seems like functionally that's a local monopoly. Yeah, but I'm saying like functionally, if the like the, if the issue is that like prices remain extremely low and that benefits pretty much everyone who's a consumer um just because somebody isn't able to compete in a given market because of low chance of success is not inherently a problem like, well, I but I do think that I think it's horrible for all of our uh you know for for like one economic block to control everything like that means like the entire economy of a town can be controlled by not just a business, but by like a board of directors who will never even know that that town's name. I mean, it, there's it's it's so far from democracy, it's almost laughable. It's there's there, there's no meaningful freedom for any of the people there, and there are consequences to the destruction of local industry too. They underprice until the local business goes out, and then they bring the prices back up. Now there are no longer well-paying local jobs. You have to go and work at Walmart to make enough money to buy the stuff from Walmart. Uber did this. They underpriced for years to drive taxis out of business. And now, if you've all noticed in opening up your Uber app in the past 8, 12 months, everything is like three times the price it used to be. They just did that. They did it for, they were waiting the whole time. And now, finally, the, they've sprung it on us. Yeah, the problem is that these monopoly profits are somewhat ethereal as other people enter the market. That's one thing. So like, you know, now it's like Uber, Lyft, and like four other companies as opposed to just Uber. So Uber's like relative profits have actually been pretty anemic. That's one thing. Two- yeah, well, well, right, but that doesn't change the fact that they've definitely like blunted out the competition, right? Yeah, but I think the other thing to note is that like uh, taxi medallions were pretty exploitative in their own regard. Um, and the barriers to entry for like being involved or having an easy way of making a couple bucks are like lower now. Yeah, it's just one monopoly over another. That's always how this has worked.
but my argument is that it's fundamentally not a monopoly in the same way. I'm saying there are more people who are doing this and like there are competing firms in this industry. And although these firms are usually pretty big, um, there uh, are capabilities from like singular, like limo services to taxi cab services, still some of them still existing to some Lyft people to some Uber people, to some, I think it was like riders, another one of them. But if you were to take the overall share of, uh, uh, of, of um, free, like ride driving in a city, it would be overwhelmingly Uber. I mean, there are other options available. If you live in a city with a million people, there are other options available. But the point is that a unelected, undemocratic, autocratic economic block now has an unimaginable amount of control. And there are consequences to that too, you know? You can go, I mean, back if you want 60 years to like the fruit company and encouraging the CIA to invade Logan South, but there are more distinct examples too. Uh, corporations weigh heavily on city boards. Amazon will bully companies into, or sorry, bully cities into giving them preferential treatment if they move in. The existence of the governments aren't the issue there. If there was no government to stop them, they would have even more control. The government is just another tool for them to use in those cases because of their already disproportionate political power. But like, what are you going to, like, if you're literally just going to be like, oh, you get big, I'm going to like slam you down. I think that also creates a situation where people are less likely to innovate or create new things or yeah. come up with new like, Okay, new, new things are expensive to do though, right? Like, you know, if you're going to be designing a new product, uh, most people are risk averse. That's, that's like a pretty fundamental thing. Mm -hmm. um, typically, like entrepreneurial types are a little more risk neutral or risk filiac. Um, but most and, innovation in this country is driven by public funding. You don't need to be a billionaire after you've invented the thing in order to comp the costs of developing it. I mean, if you if you if you want, we can talk about the government like giving like grants to, to research. I'm totally okay with like expanding that massively because I think that's a lovely thing. But when we're talking about like, oh, well, now you're like Jeff Bezos. I mean, clearly he's made back his, you know, his investment. We don't we don't need him to be that wealthy. Okay. We don't need that okay. company to be that. If this, man, if this man realizes that he is going to keep getting money from creating new things and maybe 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 it's just like a maybe it's just a fantasy maybe he's like i want to be the richest person on earth because i want to be if insofar as this uh incentive structure encourages him to create things that are of value to like millions and billions of people what is he creating though i, I think the amazon platform is pretty big um that's one thing but i think did he create that or does he just own it yeah no he created it like he uh, like back when he was you know, like a lot younger, he started selling, I think it was like shoes or books online. My mom was involved back then. She used to, um, she used to sell books on Amazon. Amazon got to be kind of a worse platform for her. So she's motive moved over to Etsy and stuff. Right. I think it was, I think it was books and he, he, he worked. Did he, did he code it or, or was he like physically hauling the books in the trucks or. Uh, so he originally, I did, did some of the coding. I think as he, uh, his company grew, he hired more people and then started this fulfillment center thing later on. It seems like he hasn't done any work in quite some time then. Uh, so your argument is he is still obtaining benefits when he is no longer doing the work. I mean, in terms of scope though, I, I think like advancing to new areas or um, trying to put his accumulated capital towards developing new things 
is an example of um, like a good action. Let's say what? it's investment, but that wealth could belong to his workers. They could be spending that money. That work could be going towards the government in the form of taxes. Him and his whole board of directors. There's no reason. I mean, if you want, you could give like one man a trillion dollars and then he like yeah. spends it on something and you're like, well, look, he's using it. Well, sure, of course, you gave him hundreds well, of billions. Of course, he's going to put it towards something. Uh, well, I think the issue is how it's set up and how it works. So like think of the government spending, like about a third of it goes towards bombing Iraqi children. About a third of it goes towards uh, helping old people out. And probably like 0.02% goes towards research. Um, if if it was the case that government was typically funding research and this would be a good investment, I think that would probably change my mind a little bit. Well, um, I think that's. I mean, that's somewhat reductive. I do quite like helping old people, but the it's it, the, the the military budget won't increase if we you know pay our taxes more. They'll keep escalating it if as they have to. I think that the. Um, I mean, the, the issue ultimately is like Jeff Bezos's power and his wealth are not something we need socially. They don't incentivize anything. The people who are innovating in Amazon right now are working for a third of what I make in a month in Amazon as engineers. Those are the people who innovate. The day-to-day -day technical decisions that allow mega companies like Tesla, Amazon, banks, all of them, are being done by people whose names we will never, ever, ever know. But for some reason, we have this obsession with, you know, oh, Bezos came first. Okay, fine. So he came first. But that's like letting a, a state be controlled by a dictator because they discover the land. That company, Amazon, isn't Bezos's, and it's not the board of directors. A slip of paper from the government says that it is, but it's properly the ownership of the people who work there it's theirs they're the ones who actually yeah. do what benefits all of us I'm, I'm a little bit doubtful about that in the sense that um there is a benefit to expecting a steady paycheck that's one thing um when there might be a low risk of success so like uh let's say i hired somebody to you know do a venture and like nine out of ten times the venture fails um but i'm still out of the money but like the one time i get like a ten thousand dollars or something um or like a lot of money um my argument is that that's not something that's inherently objectionable um and that people but have we all take risks don't we well, don't workers take risks um in some ways but not in the same ways why not um well number one they usually aren't having their so, so like workers can theoretically invest uh their pay in terms of or in into the, the company, but they usually don't. Like for instance, if I wanted to, when I'm working for Amazon, I could put my pay towards like getting a slight share of Amazon. I'm probably not gonna do that because I'd prefer to have that money be liquid. Um, but you risk but, becoming unemployed. By not having okay. control over the company that you're giving your labor to, you risk becoming unemployed. If you own a business and that business is turning a profit, you're set. I mean, circumstances but, but can if, uh, change, but you know. But if there's if, liability associated, though, you don't you don't run the risk of having to a pay people who are who are owed something. Yeah, you do. Often, your landlord. What? As a worker, you pay your landlord. You pay the government. You pay your landlord. That's like pay... a very different thing, I think. Um, no, we all have we all have financial uh, uh, obligations we have to adhere to, don't we? 
I mean, to some degree, but I think it's a different type, though. And I think that's like part of the issue. It's a lower amount because they don't have as much power. But no, I was going to say it's a different type. I don't think it's just the amount. Well, the I difference think... is, well, I, I just want to say, like, it, like if, if Bezos, like, fails, if Amazon fails, he's wealthy and he sinks it and he sells it and what off. But if a worker gets laid off and they can't pay their rent, that's homelessness. We're, we're talking about people, you know, you're always talking about risk. The greatest risk is poverty and workers are poorer than owners. The people always, you know, we, we laud the, the risk taking skills of the, you know, the bourgeois and they do take risk. And by the way, if you have a worker cooperative, uh, you know, everyone starting it up would probably put in that risk. But at the end of the day, everyone wants to be rich. Everyone wants to own the business. Why? Because it is the good model. Because at the end of the day, if the alternative is poverty, that's always going to be the greatest risk. But we, we, we externalize that. The poverty of the worker is outside. It's quiet. It's beneath the roads. But, oh, the risk-taking of the entrepreneur. Well, that's, you know. And we, we write articles about it, celebrating. But nobody writes articles about the dishwasher who travels from one city to another because they heard they'll get paid $2 more at that job. But then the, uh, they don't actually get hired. They were promised the job, but they found somebody else. They're brother's cousin or something no we don't we don't nobody writes articles about that we we anonymize and abstract so much suffering and risk-taking and we we eulogize the risk-taking of people who already have their boots firmly planted on our throats i mean we're talking about jeff bezos here we're talking about business owners here they are but i don't think this only applies to business owners that's something well. that i think um so a good example is like going to college is a sort of risk right we basically plot plop down 200k and give up four years of our life in anticipation of potentially making money some people don't like some people end up like being uh full of debt until they're like 45 other people make a lot more as a result of it like not all risks pay off and i think we tend to like people who and i'm not saying this is fair but well, we saying, should like, have free college that would solve that problem um but i still think like you you do run into the risk of another four years of like unpaid labor um are you gonna like pay people to go to college sure yeah, people should have a UBI. Okay, um, but I think that like that still doesn't obscure. And before going to college too. Okay, um, I don't know if we could afford that. I just think that like the level of cost would would be astronomical. But like, let, let's say it wouldn't be for the purpose of like this discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think like there oftentimes is a question of like what the expected value of doing something is, and I don't think. I don't think like workers don't participate in risks, but it's like you generally need to convince people why doing something is a good thing, which I think leads to less exploitation than a system of just like, you're going to do this. And I see um, like hiring somebody in some degree as creating a type of agreement to try to mitigate risk. I, so, what? so like, oh, sorry. so like uh, if, if I was a worker, right. Mm -hmm. And maybe I could make maybe like $300 a day, but I'm not sure I can get that consistently. And maybe I need to get that consistently. Maybe getting like $200 a day, but knowing that I'm going to get that is more important than other things. Because maybe I agree to something like this. There isn't anything inherently objectionable to agreeing to be an employee or something. Sure. And I mean, I, you could agree to be an indentured servant in some societies, couldn't you? We decided that wasn't really worth it. That was a free choice you could make. You weren't even coerced into it all the time, but we decided that even if it was a decision you made of your own free will, there are some things you shouldn't be able to sell, some decisions you shouldn't be able to make. And uh, I think that would be one of them. Now, of course, it's to a lesser extent. Obviously, indentured servants had it a bit worse than modern wage slaves. But um, 
with with the the way we have things set up now, the social wealth to pay for people's college funds already exists because we already do it. It takes us a bit longer and some people pay it off right away and some people take a while to do it, but clearly that wealth already exists. It's just a matter of where that wealth is. And the amount is arbitrary. I mean, $200,000, there's no reason college should cost that much. You know, we, 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 we amp the price up significantly. And our school system needs renovations anyway. But the, the issue here, I think, ultimately, is, is one of incentive structures. And I just do not think that the promise of being an autocrat with unlimited economic power, not unlimited, a ton, uh, is necessary to incentivize uh, entrepreneurial decision-making. In fact, I think oftentimes when you do have these spectacular entrepreneurial decisions, you know, um, in a, innovation, they happen at the beginning when Jeff Bezos probably wasn't looking to be the wealthiest man on earth, but rather like, I hope I have a somewhat successful business. And he kicks off with that. And then when you move past that point and you start hiring engineers and technicians, eventually the innovation is on them. There are people innovating uh, right now under Tesla and SpaceX, but it's not Elon Musk. He's the front guy. The people doing the innovation are there. And in colleges, uh, research firms uh, uh, for, for or, or, or pharmaceutical companies, you know, the billionaires who make the pharmaceutical company profits aren't the ones doing the drug making, right? The pharmaceutical oh, technicians are. I think the issue is the means of production and who owns them in some ways. Though. I agree. I think, well, yeah, I think we both agree that that's the case, but I think that private ownership generally makes more sense on the basis of um, A, having more diversified approaches to things because the future is like vague and subjective and no one has an idea of what happens. B, I think the issue is if I'm going to be um, doing well. So like in the case uh, we were talking about before, of where if you have under 12 people, it's okay to maybe hire people, question mark. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, that's gonna strongly incentivize me not to try to level this up past that. In fact, I would probably wanna cap that because if it went beyond that, the sort of goods that I was going to have, I'm no longer able to have following that. Um, sure. I, 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 think, well, I think- Well, in that case, you would be the victim of what I'm currently the victim because then larger worker cooperatives would eat you up. In a market economy, they would still have access to cheaper resources due to the, um, you know, economic scale. You would be limiting yourself both in your production and in what you're willing to pay wages to. And the workers underneath you, depending on how vested they are and what it is you're doing, would probably rather work for a secure institution that can promise them higher wages because it's cooperatively owned and thus their managers are susceptible to democratic interests than they would stick around with a uh, ceiling capped autocratic system at that point the incentive structure is in my favor and i think that you the pressure would be on you you in order to keep your people would would be like okay and you would have to accede the democratic rights so that would be yeah, my but goal think, but i think like i think that's sort of kind of uh like a big infringement on freedom though um, why we're increasing freedom now it's democratic well, well, I don't think democratic always uh, create uh, or increases freedom. That's kind of the fundamental issue is what I'm getting at. Like, um, take the take the example I made like in the beginning of our discussion about how like a lot of America is somewhat socially conservative, right? Like, um, if uh, like the majority of America were in the market of like birth control pills or abortion pills or whatever, um, and most people tended not to like it, you'd probably see a situation where 
there's very few opportunities to be able to purchase such goods and services. I'm not necessarily sure if I agree with that, but I understand the, the broader point you're making. The argument like, that I would make is that that's the case anyway. Um, even back when it was legal to serve to black people, there were tons of businesses that wouldn't because there was an economic and social pressure for them not to accede. I think yeah, those like, pressures uh, you're talking about, the way that the public mandate can influence what people do and can't do, I think those exist whether or not we're talking about within or without democracy. All I'm really doing is creating incentive structures for uh, you know, a properly uh, democratic system. What if the workers underneath you want to make your system democratic? Like, why wouldn't they? What argument could you make to them? Like, here's the reason why you're better off having no control over this firm and leaving all profits to me, which I then set wages for all of you. Like, what what would the argument be? Like, why would they ever? Yeah, sure. So, so here's three arguments. Number one, I might be willing to pay above what you'd be able to find elsewhere. But if um, it's democratic, they could just make you pay them that well what i'm saying is okay so it's so in a democratic situation let's say like let's say the the, the profits of a firm are sort of capped because maybe they haven't made any specific innovation insofar as i'm innovative and i'm able to produce above the market rate in anticipation of later profits um that is a strong reason why somebody might prefer to work under a less democratic system that, that's one thing number if two that was the case well, yeah, I, I think it would be the case. That's that's the other aspect to it. Um, number two, um, I think uh, there are benefits to not necessarily wanting to be in charge of management. Like, for instance, I probably would hate to be a manager, um, and I, I, I take it you would too. Like, it seems like an authoritarian, boring job that wouldn't really match my individual skill set. Um, and sort of being outside the realm of that means I don't have to like think about it. I don't have to consider it. Um, not every single person wants to be deeply involved in work. Some people see work as a means to like going back to leisure and stuff. I think like different levels of emotional, mental and other types of investment are another reason. And so I sort of disagree earlier with what you were talking about, about full actualization. Well, they could just elect the manager, couldn't they? That could be their threat. They could be like, um, you know, if we went democratic, uh, we will make you pay us these higher wages. And if you don't, we will vote you out and vote in someone who will. Their only role really would be the ability to excise someone from power if they were behaving in ways they didn't like. You'd have to make the books public as well so you couldn't lie about the profits to them. Um, but apart from that, I feel like that'd be a pretty... Because from their side of things, I mean, it's, it's basically like trusting you versus having the ability to hold you to account. And I just... People in America really don't like their bosses that much, you know? I think they're kind of crying out for this. And I, I, I feel like when, when people realize this is a thing they can do, I, I think it's going to catch on quite a bit. Um, that would be my hope, of course. It's possible it, it doesn't. But I, I think there would be a strong public demand for it, you know? I just, I, 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 I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but we've been talking for two hours. It's actually about the time my stream ended. Um... I wanted to, there's, there's a, fun. like I had a good time. No, I've, ha I've had a lovely time. I, I really appreciate you coming on seriously. Uh, usually when I'm talking about this, I'll just say this, then feel free to end. I'll give you the closing, whatever you want to say. Um, mm -hmm. But usually the analogy that I use for this is like, um, it's, we're, we're, we're removing the freedom for like the, um, the aristocrat or the nobleman 
to, to become like a, you know, a, a proper feudal lord, I think. Um, because technically anyone can do it, you know. If you get a big enough army, you can conquer a castle and just control the land around it with all the serfs and the farms and stuff. And you can hire knights and what have you. But we don't allow that anymore. Even if the person in that position could theoretically make excellent promises to their potential future serfs. Because when you have the ability to default to that option, you enable the acquisition of power through that mean you know if you could somehow be like okay worker cooperative society but these few businesses are privately owned there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself but the 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 ability for that to happen sets a mandate and a precedent which allows them to acquire disproportionate political power through that system likewise like imagine if the u.s government allowed sovereign citizens to declare like their houses private you know like an independent nation you know kind of harmless on a point-by-point -point case but then somebody's going to make the argument like hey everyone in this block what if we got together and declared sovereignty you know maybe this is our street now and then you get further and further and eventually you have like people with ak-47s dropping bombs on each other somewhere in the southwest there's it's a very bad road at the end of that the absolute assurance of democracy in our in our border is 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 politically stabilizing and i think that economically we could see something similar anyway those are just my thoughts on it I'll give you the final word. I did enjoy the conversation tremendously. So please hit us up and shout out whatever you'd like after the end. Awesome. Yeah. One question before I make my final remark. Um, is this going to be on YouTube? I want to show my friends afterwards. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It'll be on one of my channels, depending on the day and uh, which um, uh, w what else gets put out there. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. And I guess what I would say in response to this is I think um, I think there are underestimated benefits to living in a mostly free market world um and all, i i don't really see a problem with having worker collectives exist i also don't think there's inherently a problem with uh, a lot of them existing i think my only problem is um sort of mandating this and giving people the choice to decide what sort of employment they want is a more important freedom um in my opinion than that of like a democratic workplace. I would personally prefer to work less hours and make uh, about the same, but not be democratically involved than to um, be involved, but um, have to put more hours in. And I guess that's more just a fundamental difference in tastes. And yeah, Absolutely. Thank you. No, no, it, it's been a huge pleasure. Um, Isidore, thank you for coming on. And uh, hi, Isidore's friends. Um, I guess I'll be on cam if it's on a YouTube video, but hi. Uh, awesome. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for coming on. And um, yeah, it was a delight to see you at For Your Future Fest as well. Yeah, thank you. And have a nice day. I like the gloves. It's, my hands are cold. I, I, it's, I, I guess because I've lost weight, I get colder easily. And anyway, take care. Yeah, bye. Bye. Hello, Vosh. Vosh bad. Vosh bad. Vosh bad. Well, that was nice. Hello, soaked on left, waiting for the nanosecond the call ended. Uh, no, no, I, I I saw your comments during. It's actually been a while since I've done one of these free market argument things. Not since um, Yaron Brook, but Yaron Brook was a fucking lunatic, and 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 he wasn't. So, uh, yeah, let me uh, let me let me give your thing a look. I think quite a few of your arguments could have stronger if directly defended egalitarianism rather than anti-exploitation marketing view. If you'd incorporated indirect social ownership for social wealth funds. No, social what? Don't tell me you're buying into this sock dem shit too. Every time people talk about social wealth funds, it 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 
uh, it just makes me think it's going to be like, it's like, dude, it's more fair capitalism, but it doesn't like eliminate the bourgeois. Like, you know, market socialism eliminates the bourgeois, at least, you know, I mean, it's, it's a half measure, but it's, it's, you know. No, no, I, I think social welfare funds are good. I just, to me, like, the big thing is the elimination of the bourgeois. That, that to me, is the big... I would... Now, listen, this is my secret opinion, okay? This is my dog-whistling opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm dog-whistling right now, okay? But, uh, no, not really. I think I would be willing to accept anything from mild to moderate economic losses for a total turnover to worker cooperatives. Uh, if it meant the elimination of the bourgeois as a class, I actually think because I think it meant it would mean a more equitable distribution of those resources that would mean for the average person a higher standard of living. It also means greater political control and democracy like huge, huge, huge. So like that to me is the big kicker, you know, but yeah, I, I, I need to touch up on some of these arguments here. Okay, the Marx ratio ratio. How social wealth funds solve a major co-op problem. Okay, if, it, if it's in tandem with co-ops that gets my jimmies afloat. No debates. There we go. Degrowth is the only way forward. Wrong. We're going to grow big. The black gloves make it look like you're doing wet work for the mop. My hands are still cold. I'm ending straight. I'll do donos tomorrow. Fuck you guys. We should talk about this sometime. Full direct worker ownership has two problems. One of the efficiency question, one of the inequality problem, mostly in high capital sectors. Indirect worker ownership still allows class abolition via social ownership and labor market decommodification. How does that, how does indirect, how would that solve it? Also, would you be able to vote in your manager? It's not democracy. If it's in, indirect worker ownership sounds like the kind of indirect democracy tankies talk about, you know? Where they're like, yeah, we had workplace democracy. The workers had a party member and the party member could say the thing and maybe that could do a thing. Like, state ownership isn't, isn't, isn't sufficient. It needs to be direct. I, I want every individual worker to go to work every single day uh, with with a with a fucking uh, dynamite bomb strapped to their chest. Everyone has the democratic right to fucking blow up the entire bill. <laughs> no, I th radical freedom. You can democratically participate in something you don't directly own. Yeah, but if they don't own it, then how are they? Then if they don't own it, then who owns it? Sock done left SDL. If they don't own it, who owns it? Society. Not, but not real. Then, then, then who, then who votes in? Okay, social ownership. Okay, so the the wealth is redistributed to the state. Fine, sure, a portion of the wealth. Okay, wait, how is that different from taxes? Taking a portion of the wealth from a corporation and redistributing it to state goods is literally what we do with taxes. Wait, what's the difference here? Would it just be like it's cut directly from the profits? Like it doesn't come out through like total profits, but it comes out from the. Wait. God damn it, I'll read into it. You cucky sock dems aren't getting me today. I'm lying about the worker cooperative thing too, okay? I secretly want a Leninist vanguard revolution. I'm just, this is easier with the liberals. Okay, uh, 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 where are we? Where, where, where are we? Donations? Uh, hands are cold. All right, I love you guys. You're all beautiful people. You're so cool. Oh my god. You're so fucking cool. <gasps> wow. So cool. Um I'm streaming tomorrow. Uh and it'll be fun.
It'll be a good time. I have to end stream so that my editors can release a video. <laughs> Alright. Wait, what video is even going to be released? Do we have anything lined up for the main channel? Damn, these are both limited monetization? Oh my god. We're not making any money today. Wait, uh... Hold on. Taxes are a shift of income to mostly rich and corporations to mostly welfare. Social ownership shift of wealth stock to mostly rich corporation society. Mm. I think you severely overestimate the revolutionary potential of cooperatives. The Nordic countries have tons of co-ops. They're still capitalists. No, no, no. It's not enough to just have lots of cooperatives. There need to be no non-cooperatives. There can be absolutely zero private ownership anywhere in the country. Not a single person who makes their money purely from ownership and not from working. It has to be a complete convert. All you do by having 80% co-ops, 20% private businesses is ensure that the 20% who own those private businesses are the bourgeois. Like, it, the, the, the bourgeois as a class exists until there are zero of them. If there was exactly one bourgeois member in the entirety of the world, they would still be the guy 